Well, John MacArthur tells the account that a new baby, a newborn baby, was abandoned in a pile of trash in a city alley. And how tragic, you know, that is. The mother obviously left it there to die. The infant was near death when someone heard its faint cry and summoned medical help. The child survived, but only because it received the attention and nourishment it needed. Now, this situation, when you think about it, has a similarity, a spiritual similarity, doesn't it? When you think about it, and Peter will use this to illustrate how critical it is for every believer to spend or depend upon God's word for spiritual growth. And as Christians, we should all have at least two goals that directly relate to our spiritual growth. And the first goal is to increase our desire for the Word of God, right? Our second goal should be to keep growing spiritually. And I'm sure you guys have those as your goal. But how can you increase your craving? How do you increase your craving for the Word of God and to avoid spiritual stagnation? Well, we'll dive into this in a few moments. I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Let's go ahead and read those three verses. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Peter says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord." Now, 1 Peter is an amazing epistle, and here is a little background of this, of this letter, and many of you, I'm sure, have studied this letter, but just as a reminder, 1 Peter was written around A.D. 64-65 by the Apostle Peter. This letter was written shortly after Emperor Nero burned down the city of Rome in July of A.D. 64 because of his obsession to build. He just loved to build buildings. The Roman citizens were devastated by this destructive fire as their culture and everything that was normal in their lives became abnormal. Their abnormal lives became their normal lives. Does this all sound familiar, right? 2020 and so far here in 2021. Well, their idols and the great temples went down in flames in the city and the citizens' anger turned into hostility. So Nero, being a, in a very difficult situation, had to redirect their anger somewhere else. And guess who Nero thought of and who he blamed? He blamed the Christians. That's right. They already hated because of their hostility to the Roman culture and because of their close association to the Jews, so they were persecuted. These Christians were living throughout, as 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says, the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, located in, in what we know today as a country of Turkey. Well, some great theological doctrines, how to live godly in practical ways, and what you have been given because of your faith in Christ are written in the five chapters of 1 Peter, such as you were chosen for salvation according to the foreknowledge of God. As 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tells us, you have hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and an imperishable inheritance, as 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tells us. You were, excuse me, 3 and 4 tells us, you were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. As 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says, that you can also have victory over fleshly lusts, as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, and 
living with hope in the midst of fiery trials, suffering, and persecution. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. And while when you think about it, some great doctrines, right, of the faith, what you have with salvation, and practical instructions on how to live godly life. You know, in the Psalms, we witness that the psalmist truly desired, as we heard this morning, that he desired, he delighted, and he, he depended upon the word of God. And listen to these verses in Psalm 119. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 119, verses 97 to 104. Listen to what the psalmist says. He says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, and notice the synonyms for the word of God, right? Ordinances and precepts, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste? Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And verse 104 says, from your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. So here we see the psalmist's desire, his passion to grow spiritually as he studied, as he meditated, and he chewed upon God's word. Isn't that great? I mean, what a great example for us, right? And what we should be doing also as we study the word of God. Do you have that same desire this morning as the psalmist did to learn and grow from God's word? Or maybe you're saying this morning, I'm starving spiritually. You're being honest. And I used to have that deep hunger for God's word when I was first saved. But now I don't. Something happened. Or maybe you keep putting off reading the Bible. And you say, ah, you know, I'll read the word of God tomorrow. So there your Bible sits in a corner collecting dust, right? Or maybe you want to continue to grow spiritually. Well, guys, these are real-life spiritual thoughts, right, that we have and are taking place. So how can you get back to being totally committed to the Word of God? Well, Peter provides five ways. If you have your outline, five ways to intensify your desire for the Word of God, which will increase your spiritual growth. The first way to intensify your desire for the Word of God that will increase your spiritual growth is to remember that you were born again by the Word of God. You were born again by the word of God. Look at verse 1. Peter says, therefore. Now, Peter says, therefore, which points us back, as we know, to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, to establish the context. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Verse 22 says, since you have an obedience to the truth, purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. In verse 22, Peter told the Christians that they were not sincerely showing love for the brethren, but they were engaging in the sins that we just read about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So Peter reminded the believers in verses 23 to 25 to remember why they should have fervent love for 
one another. And it all begins by remembering what God graciously did for them as undeserving sinners. Peter reminds them there in verse 23 that they were saved through an imperishable seed, the word of God. John MacArthur says, seed represents the source of life. Everything that comes to life in the created order begins with a seed, the basic life source that initiates plant and animal existence. But nothing in the material world has the capacity to produce spiritual and eternal life. Thus God did not affect the new birth using seed, which is perishable. The imperishable seed is the message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried, and he rose again. And hopefully this morning you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and believe what he did for you on the cross. If not, remember, whenever a sinner places his faith alone in Christ alone and his atoning work on the cross, the Holy Spirit regenerates him. He is born again, declared righteous, right? Cleansed from all sin and begins to live a holy, spirit-empowered life, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us. Not only that, but also if you look at Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it also tells us that we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But Peter continues this thought to his readers in verse 23 to remember that you were born again by, and he uses, notice, two present active participles to describe the word of God. What does he say? He says the word of God is living, and what? The word of God is enduring. Living means that the word of God is alive today, encouraging, convicting, building you up every single time that you study it. And you all know this, that the Bible which you are holding in your hands was written by over 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Living also means that the 31,102 verses in your 66-book Bible are not dead, but they are alive. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 tells us, for the word of God is what? It's living, you know this verse, and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is special revelation. It's supernatural. It's totally active today in every single believer's life. And you guys have seen those, those thermal red cameras, right, that are infrared cameras that are used to detect heat, right, in objects, which produces a, a red, orange, and yellow image, right? We've seen that. Now, I'm exaggerating when I say this, but if you pointed that thermal infrared camera at an actual Bible, you would see those brilliant red, orange, and yellow colors, right? You'll see that. Why? Because the Bible is alive. It's full of life. It's sizzling. It's hot. And it transforms our life. Well, not only is the Bible living, but verse 23 says that it's also enduring. Enduring means that the Word of God will remain forever and ever. Then in verses 24 to 25, Peter, quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 to 8, reinforces what he had just said in verse 23 about the perishable seed which represents life, humanity, and plants that Ecclesiastes says are transitory. They will all fade away, but the word of God, what? Will last forever. In fact, in Psalm 119, verse 89, and for all my psalm references, I'll be using the Legacy Standard Bible, which just came out, which is an updated version of the New American Standard. But here's what it says. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Yahweh, your word stands firm in heaven. 
The Word of God is relevant for 2021, and for all generations, it will never, ever change. Remember Paul writing to the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, he said this. He said, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word from men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The word of God is sanctifying It's guiding, reviving, strengthening, counseling, convicting, warning, transforming you, and that's just to name a few benefits of the Word of God, every single time that you read it. So first, in order to hunger, to have a strong, consistent desire for the Word of God and to grow spiritually, first remember that you were born again by the Word of God. Well, are you ready, ready to know how to continue to increase your hunger for the Word of God and to grow spiritually? Well, as the saying goes, let's not put the cart before the horse, right? Before a believer can continue to experience an increase in their hunger for the word of God and grow in salvation, something, something must be removed. We have to remove something out of our lives. And we have to have a desire to remove it out of our lives also. The word therefore in verse 1 only pointed you back, but always points you forward to items, to action items that you must take and apply to your lives, which will help you grow spiritually. Which leads us to the second way to intensify your desire for the Word of God that will increase spiritual growth, and is to remember that you must keep putting away sin. You must keep putting, you must keep putting away sin. And we're going to spend a lot of time here on point two. Now, as believers, we all have the power to keep putting away sin. We have the power it's in us to do that, and we'll see that in a few moments. Now, sin, as we all know, is, is an act that grieves our holy God. Sin is not obeying God and following his commandments. Puritan John Owen said, keep killing sin, and you know this phrase, or sin will be what? Will be killing you, that's right. Another great quote from an old Scottish preacher still holds true today, which says, sin will keep you from the Bible, or the Bible will keep you from, from sin. Amen. Now, Howard Hendricks said this, and I don't know if you've heard this statement before. Interesting. He says, remember, dusty Bibles always lead to dirty lives. Isn't that true? How true it is. Dusty Bibles always lead to dirty lives. Make sure you're reading the Word of God, right? But seriously, is there an ongoing sin in your life or in your marriage that you're holding on to that maybe you desire to still have, which has become a hindrance, maybe a, a roadblock or even a blind spot that is keeping you from desiring more of God's word and from growing spiritually. Well, look at verse 1. Notice Peter lists five character-defining sins that believers back then were engaged in that kept them from loving the brethren, desiring more of God's word, and from growing spiritually. Well, Peter commands us to, to take action and to constantly kill or to put away these sins on a daily basis. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of sins, as we know, we see here, but some sins that will stunt your spiritual growth, your hunger for the Word of God, and also keep you from loving the brethren. Peter says, therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And the phrase here, putting aside, means that there is a desire to completely separate, to separate or to, to depart from sin. 
Peter also used this phrase, putting aside, to speak about stripping off soiled or dirty clothes or garments. One commentator said, in ancient Christian baptism ceremonies, those being baptized customarily took off and discarded the clothes they wore to the ceremony. Following their baptism, they put on new robes they received from the church. Exchanging clothes symbolizes the salvation reality of laying aside the old life and taking up the new. If such transformation really occurred in someone's life, he should be putting aside all sins that are a hindrance to fully desiring God's word. And how true that quote is. And notice this is not the first time that we see the command for believers to lay aside sin. For instance, Paul used the principle, remember, of putting off sin, putting on righteousness in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, and Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. James, in James chapter 1, verse 21, spoke about putting aside all filthiness and wickedness before receiving God's word. But notice in verse 1 that Peter uses the word all three times to emphasize how strong your desire must be about totally putting away the sin that's in your life. You see, it all starts with your desire to put away sin. Not holding on to sin, but your desire to put away sin. So we are commanded by Peter to put aside sin. Now, Peter is not just going to tell you to put aside sin without telling you how to do it, right? How do you put away sin? Maybe you're asking yourself that question this morning. Yeah, I know he tells me to do that, but how do I do it? How do I put away sin? There's a sin that's bothering me. I just can't get rid of it. What do I do? So how can you keep putting aside sin in your life? What are some sources that you can personally use to fight against the sins that, you, that battle within your soul. Well, if you notice, there was a verse that we did not cover earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25. Look at that verse, which, says, which therefore immediately points back to, right? And it says, and this is the word which was preached to you. Peter says, first of all, your desire to battle sin, which starts in your mind or in your heart, right, begins with you using as your source the imperishable word of God. Secondly, you can also fight sin by remembering what God has given you when you were first saved. For instance, turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter 8. You've got to see this. Romans chapter 8, verses, we'll look at 9 to 13, but look at 9 to 11 first of all. Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 9. We don't really have time to really develop all of this this morning. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, says this. Paul says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Verse 10 says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Verse 11 says, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. In verses 9 to 11, notice that Peter mentions three times. What does he mention three times in those verses? That every believer has when they were, when they were first saved. That was given to them. What do they have? The Holy Spirit, right? Who dwells in us. So because we have the Holy Spirit, we should be desiring things of God, not things of the flesh, right? One commentator said this about the flesh, the flesh is the ugly complex of human sinful desires that includes the ungodly motives, 
affections, principles, purposes, words, and actions that sin generates through our bodies. To live according to the flesh is to be ruled and controlled by that evil complex. Because of Christ's saving work on our behalf, the sinful flesh no longer reigns over us to debilitate us and drag us back into the pit of depravity into which we were all born. Kind of sounds like Pilgrim's Progress, doesn't it? For that reason, we are no longer ruled by the flesh to live in its sinful ways. So every believer has been given to them the power, not only the Holy Spirit, but the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead inside of them. Okay? Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 13. Paul says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In verse 13, Paul says that as believers, actually verse 12, Paul says that we're not obligated to the flesh anymore, right? We're really obligated to who? The Spirit. But here in verse 13, Paul says, if as a believer you are living in the flesh or you are sinning and desire to kill the flesh, the Holy Spirit provides you with the energy and the power to continually and gradually kill your sins as you submit and obey the word of God. You see that? So every believer has the Holy Spirit indwelling in them, and we have the power that raised Christ from the dead right in us, and if we desire to kill the flesh or kill, this, kill sin in, in, our, in our flesh, then we, as we read the word of God, then we will be able to kill sin gradually. Okay? It's like Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, now to him who's able to do what? Exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think, according to who? The power that works inside of us. That is the Holy Spirit, Right? So we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit to fight any sin in our lives. But John MacArthur offers five helpful ways to kill sin in your life. Five ways to kill sin. First way, he says, it's imperative to recognize the presence of sin in our flesh. If we do not admit to sin, as 1 John 1.8 says, we delude ourselves and become vulnerable to sin's influence. And remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. Remember what he said? He said, search me, what? O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Second way, MacArthur says to kill sin, is that believers must have a heart fixed on God, that your heart must be fixed on God. When we know and obey God's word, we are building up both our defenses and offenses against sin. It's like David said to the Lord in Psalm 119, verses 5 to 6. He said, oh that, my way may, oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes, then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. But a third way to fight sin is to meditate on God's word. Meditate on God's word. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, your word I have treasured, or I have what? I have hidden in my heart that I might not what? sin against you. The fourth way, prayer, right? Commune regularly with God in prayer. True prayer must always, though, have an element of confession, right? That we must go to God and confess our sins. God already knows what sins we have in our heart, but we need to confess that sin to God in order to be cleansed of our sins. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, 
Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in a time of need. So constantly go to God in your prayers and ask God to help you fight your sins. And lastly, MacArthur says, practical obedience to God. Doing his will and his will alone in all the small issues of life can be training and habits that hold up in severe times of temptations. Five really great ways, right, to fight sin. And we all have sin in our lives, right? Five great ways in order to fight sin. And here are some verses to help you as you continue to battle to fight sin. And I'll just kind of go through these just a little quickly here. But Romans chapter 13, verse 4, where he talks about putting up, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Galatians 5, uh, verses 16 to 26, live by the Spirit, right? Not by the flesh. Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 4, imitate Christ. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 to 9, to think about things that are true, honest, just, pure, right? Lovely. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, set and to seek things where? Above, not down here on the earth, right? And lastly, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, and there's other verses also, abstain from fleshly lusts, which what? Which war, which rage war against your souls. So if we go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, after knowing how we can continue to gradually kill sin by the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? As we, again, use the word of God. The first thing that Peter commands us to put aside is what? Is malice. And we'll kind of go through these sins kind of quickly. I think we kind of know what these are. But malice. Malice is any moral evil coming from the heart. It, it is wickedness of every kind. It denotes cruelty, badness, or bringing about every evil circumstance. Malice carries the idea of wanting to harm someone. And why did Peter put malice first in this list of sins? Well, the word malice, when you think about it, it's like an umbrella, right? And all the other sins, when you think about it, hang from it, and they are interconnected with malice. Paul in Ephesians 4, verse 31, commanded the believers and said, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Again, all these sins are interconnected with malice. Well, what is the opposite behavior of showing malice? Well, going out of your way to be kind and compassionate to one another. In fact, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Do you have malice maybe in your heart towards someone this morning? Maybe your spouse, maybe a fellow believer, maybe somebody at work. Well, if you do, quickly confess that sin to God and repent and turn away from that sin. And remember, God is, is a loving God, a forgiving God, and he's ready to forgive you of your sins right now. In fact, Psalm 86 verse 5 says, For you, Lord, are good and by nature forgiving and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. What well, a second sin believers are commanded to do away with is deceit, is deceit. The meaning behind deceit is being dishonest, cunning, guile, crafty, with falsehood and treachery. It can mean to trick someone by deception in order to take advantage of them. 
D. Edmund Hebert said, it is the selfish two-faced attitude that deceives and hurts others for personal gain. Now, one believer told me one time that there was nothing wrong with telling a little white lie. Is that true? By telling a little white lie. No, no, a lie is a lie, right? You know, the ends don't justify the means. Psalm 34, verse 13 says, guard your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Well, what is the opposite behavior of being deceitful? Well, going out of your way, right, to be truthful and honest with people about your intentions, and God will bless you for that. I mean, the Bible says if you are truthful, God will bless you for that. It's guaranteed. In fact, Psalm 32, verse 2 says, How blessed is a man, how blessed is a man, right, whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So you will be blessed as you tell the truth to one another. And can I say tax season is upon us, right? April 15th. Let's be honest, as we fill our, fill our, file our taxes and, and be honest in other areas, such as submitting a resume, taking you know, tests, homework assignments. And for young people out there, let's be honest always with our parents, right? All the time. I'm sure parents are saying, yeah, be honest you know, to, to us, right? We always want to be honest to our parents. But third sin Peter commands believers to eliminate is, eliminate is hypocrisy. Is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy means to make believe, to put on an act faking or feigning something. Hypocrisy's intention is to throw the intended victim off guard. MacArthur says hypocrisy originated, originally identified an actor who wore a mask. It refers to spiritual insincerity and pretense. The word describes any behavior that is not genuine or consistent with what one really believes or says he believes. D. Edmund Hebert describes a hypocrite as a man who is concealing his real motives, a man who meets you with a face that is very different from his heart and with words which are very different from his real feelings. When you think about it, what is, what is an example of the most wicked and devious hypocrisy in the entire Bible? Can you think of an account? Well, three verses will show us where a man's face was very different from what was really going on in his heart, his feeling, and also in his words. For instance, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26 for a brief moment. Matthew chapter 26, and we'll look at verses 47 to 49. An example of the most wicked and devious hypocrisy in the Bible. Matthew 26 verse 47 says, while he was still speaking, our Lord Jesus Christ, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him, as Judas, gave him a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. Judas speaking to the guards. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And this event occurred right after Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and asked God the Father to take his cup of divine wrath from him, remember, as God's fury was about to be poured upon our Lord Jesus Christ to pay for our sins. And Jesus obviously totally submitted to God's will. And all four Gospels record this despicable act by Judas Iscariot, who was one of Jesus' 12 original disciples. 
And kissing Jesus on the cheek was the ultimate act of hypocrisy. And why is that? Well, the word kiss in the Greek is phileo, which is reserved only for a person who has a loving, affectionate, close, and intimate relationship with someone. You know, in Jesus' day, as Cleon Rogers Jr. in the third said, the disciple was not to greet the master first. This was a sign of insubordination. And what did Judas do? He walked up to Jesus and kissed him, right? Remember what Jesus said to Matt in Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, before Jesus betrayed him? He said, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not ever been born. And look at verse 50. What did Jesus call Judas? He called him friend. He called him friend. And obviously Jesus knew that Judas was going to do this to him. He knew it. He was going to betray him. But he still called him friend. Wow, when you think about it, right? Our Lord, no hypocrisy with Jesus, nothing but true love. And this is the great God that we worship, right? And that we serve. The greatest example of, of wicked hypocrisy in the entire Bible. You know, when you think about this, as believers, we have to be careful too with hypocrisy, right? And not point our finger at Judas because we say that we love Jesus, right? We kiss him on the cheek, but we don't always obey his commandments, right? Especially about putting away our sins, right? We need to be sincere and genuine, full of absolute truth and integrity like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Not only with God should we show this, but also we should show this with others. But the fourth sin Peter commands us to eradicate is envy, is envy. Envy is being resentful towards someone or even disliking the person. Envy can also lead to believers holding grudges, heart-filled bitterness, even hatred, and inward conflict toward another for what he possesses. Envy has wrecked families, split churches, right? disbanded sports teams, closed business, and even had our Lord Jesus Christ crucified. Remember the rebellious crowd, because of their wicked envy towards Jesus, during Passover in Matthew chapter 27, verse 18, chose the notorious prisoner Barabbas over Jesus to be released. But the opposite behavior of envy is to be truly joyful for what another person has. And lastly, Peter commands believers to remove slander. Slander is speaking evil about someone. Its goal is defamation or assaults on a person's character with whispers, backbiting, and gossiping, right, behind someone's back. And can I say, be careful for prayer meetings, right? Sometimes that's where gossip happens. Hey, did you know about so-and-so, right? Be careful during prayer meetings that we don't gossip. Well, why put these types of behaviors away? Because when you think about it, every time we show malice, we're deceitful, hypocritical, envious, or slanderous, we're not imitating Jesus Christ, but who? We're imitating Satan. Satan. In John chapter 8, verse 58, it says that Satan, John says that Satan is a slanderer, a liar, and a murderer from the beginning. Speaking about Genesis chapter 3, right? When he deceived Eve. So keep putting away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and then slander. And again, if you happen to be involved in any of these sins or any sins, remember God, remember God is a forgiving God and he's ready to forgive you of your sins. Go to him, confess your sins to him. In fact, 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful 
and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So remember, you're born again by the word of God. You must keep putting away sin. And like an infant needs and craves after his mother's milk and cries for it, as, as believers, we must be willing uh, to recognize and to remember our need for the word of God to feed our souls. This leads us to the third way to intensify your desire for the word of God that will increase your spiritual growth. And this is remember that you must keep longing for the word of God. You must keep longing for the word of God. Peter says in verse 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. And as we keep putting away sin, we'll be able to have a dominant longing for the truth of God's word because our spiritual growth depends upon it, and we need to do that. And also it is of utmost importance that we acknowledge our desperate need for the word of God to feed our souls. Some believers don't feel that they have a need to read the word of God every single day. No, it's important. We should be desperate, have a desire to read God's word every single day. We must acknowledge that. I must read the word of God today and not let anyone or anything keep us from reading the word of God. You know, the phrase they're long for is a command. Its meaning is intensified by adding the preposition epi to the front of the Greek verb long, stating that believers should have an urgency, have, have uh, an extreme want or strong desire for the word of God. Well, MacArthur says its meaning, long, he's talking about, encompasses such things as the strong desire a husband or wife has for a spouse, the strong physical craving that accompanies extreme hunger, the poignant longings one has for a deceased loved one, the intense desire a Christian parent has for a spiritually wayward child to repent and return to obedience, and the strong desires believers have for the salvation of an unbelieving family member or close friend. That is my desire, too. My, my dad is 94 years old. He doesn't know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So we constantly pray for my dad. I definitely want him to be saved. But Paul also used this word long seven times in his epistles to express an intense, emotional, insatiable desire, love, or passion for something. And he shows us this in, this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, when he says, For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed in our dwelling from heaven. He's speaking about being free from this, this earthly body. You ever feel that way? And to eventually have our resurrected body one day. That's the longing Paul desired for, and I'm sure you all long for your resurrected bodies one day too. Well, Peter commanded believers in verse 2 and says, long for the pure milk of the word. You know, in original Greek language, it's presented this way. For the pure milk of the word long you. For the pure milk of the word, long you. Now, it sounds like Yoda, right, in Star Wars, when you think about it, right? Didn't know Yoda was a, not only a Jedi knight, but he was a Greek scholar too, right? So, When Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, Jeremiah says, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. That should be our desire, just like Jeremiah had for the word of God. You know, in the phrase, the pure milk of the word, milk represents the word of God as a believer's only true sustenance for them to grow spiritually. Pure means perfect, unadulterated, not contaminated or tainted. And we know that the Bible is pure, right? No mistakes in the Bible. It's inerrant, again, without any contradictions or any mistakes, right? Well, how can you tell when the Word of God has become polluted? How can you tell that? Well, 
When man's human wisdom and worldly philosophy from outside are integrated with the word of God. Be careful. Be careful when you hear maybe sermons that integrate man's philosophy in conjunction with the word of God in order to save someone or, or, or even to help you fight your sins. Be very careful there. You know, Pastor Stephen Cole says, dishonest merchants in a day would add water to their milk to make more profit. This was deceitful milk. Peter tells us to long for the pure, not deceitful milk, right, of the word of God. Psalm 19, verses 8 and 9 says, The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. Also, Psalm 119, verse 140 says, Your word is exceedingly refined, therefore your slave loves it. Right? The word of God is always pure, and you can be sure that meditating it would also keep your thoughts pure. Are you struggling with your thoughts this morning? Are you having impure thoughts? Well, Psalm 119, verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it what? According to your word. So in order to have an intense desire for the word of God and to grow spiritually, you must remember that you were born again by the living and enduring word of God. Keep putting away sin. Keep longing after the word of God. And, and believers should desire to grow spiritually, right? That, should, that was one of our goals. We should desire to grow spiritually. Which leads us to the fourth way to intensify your desire for the word of God that will increase your spiritual growth is remember that you must keep growing in your salvation. You must keep growing in your salvation. Peter says, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. You know, as a baby grows by longing and drinking milk, believers must desire the word of God in order to grow in their salvation. You know, sometimes we see pictures of malnourished children around the world, right? Which is very, very sad to see. You know, their growth as a child is stunted because of their lack of basic daily and critical sustenance needed for them to develop into a strong child, right? Well, another sad picture to see or to witness is seeing believers whom Christ died for hindered, malnourished, immature, and underdeveloped spiritually because they have not been intentional in removing sin and not desire, desiring to grow spiritually. So as a result, they lose their spiritual strength, their joy, their usefulness within the body of Christ. And that's sad to see. We want everyone serving the Lord Jesus Christ within the body of Christ. You know, the phrase there in verse 2, so, by, so that by it speaks of purpose on feasting the word of God. What is the purpose of feasting on the word of God? Verse 2 says that you may grow that you may grow in respect to salvation. The passive verb grow is used by Peter to say that believers will be impacted internally by the word of God, which will produce growth for them if they desire it and if they let it. In fact, the literal Greek translation is it, speaking about the word of God, may grow you. And grow is the same verb Peter used in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, when he commanded the believers to keep growing by letting the word of God affect you, impact you, convict you, and drive you to a deeper knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But guys, here's a stunner right here. In the Greek, the voice and mood kind of, you know, you know, I just want to mention that the verb may grow is passive subjunctive. Very important. Subjunctive means that one's spiritual growth might possibly happen. Not a guarantee. 
it might pass, possibly happen. Why? Because it depends upon your desire to put away sin and to diligently appropriate the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see that? So as you do that, you will grow in your salvation. One commentator said all believers should be motivated by the opportunity to grow strong and mature in Christ, enjoying greater blessing and usefulness. Well, what does the living and enduring word of God keep producing in a believer's life? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18 says this, but we all, and you all know the verse, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. This mirror that we just read about is the living and enduring word of God that illuminates the person, brilliance, and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as you desire and keep studying the word of God, it will slowly change you on the inside and you will keep reflecting to others the image and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ from one level of glory to the next. You are being transformed and being renewed in your mind and in your attitudes, right, as your character becomes more and more like Christ, right, as Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tells us. So don't shortchange yourself of being transformed into Christ's image by not reading and studying the living and enduring word of God. Peter continues in verse 2, and he says, in respect to salvation, could also be translated, again, to grow in salvation. Now, we are not all fully mature, right, as believers yet. Not yet. We're still, we're a work in progress, right? But that's not going to happen until we get to heaven, right? When we get to heaven, we'll have glorified bodies. Then we'll, you know, we'll know all things. So then every believer, our objective should be to continue to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that was Paul's ultimate goal, right? In Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, his goal was to be, continue to be sanctified and that he, would desire, he wanted to be Christ-like, and that's the way that we should desire to be also. So remember, you were born again by the living and enduring word of God. Keep putting away sin. Keep longing for the word of God. Keep growing in your salvation. And as a believer, if everything you've just heard still doesn't lead you or motivate you to long more for God's word, then maybe this will. And this leads us to... Our fifth and last way to intensify your desire for the Word of God that will increase your spiritual growth is that you must remember the kindness of God. You must remember the kindness of God in your life, what He has done to you. Verse 3 says, If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The phrase, if you have tasted, can also be read now that you have tasted, which exhorts believers to contemplate how God has been so amazingly good to you in your salvation. That in and of itself should compel you to crave more of God's word, right? You know, the word tasted there simply doesn't mean that you remember a little bit of what God has done for you, like taking a, a small sip of coffee or water. But no, taking big gulps and remembering God's blessings to you every single day. And what wonderful blessings has God given every believer? What have we experienced from God? Well, look, verse 3 says, the kindness of the Lord. The kindness of the Lord. Well, what are some acts of kindness from God that we all need to be thankful for? Well, we saw previously in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 to 25, that God's kindness allowed us to be saved through the imperishable seed, right? The living and enduring word of God. 
And we saw earlier in the sermon that in God's kindness, he chose us for salvation. He sanctified us. He gave us the hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we have that blessed assurance and we have the inheritance that's given to the saints. You know, in the Psalms, we see many verses that expresses God's goodness to us. And one was read this morning. For instance, Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is a man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 119, verse 68 says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And then Psalm 910 says, And those who know your name will Put their trust in you, for you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Right? Great, great verses on how God has been so kind to us. And we must acknowledge that and thank God every day for that. Amen? We really should do that. Well, how many of you have tasted or experienced the goodness of God in your life this morning. I think we can all raise our hand this morning, right? We can all definitely do that. Now, if that truly is the case, kind of put you on the spot here, right? If God has truly blessed you, then you should have an insatiable drive, a desire to put away sin, crave the word of God, and to to desire to grow in your salvation. Amen? We should all do that. Well, five ways, five ways to intensify your desire for God's word and to increase your spiritual growth is remember that you were born again by the living and enduring word of God. You must keep putting away sin. You must keep longing for the word of God. You must keep growing your salvation. You must remember the kindness of God. D. Edmund Heber said, the true aim of Bible study is never a mere mastery of its contents, but a transforming experience with the Lord who reveals himself in his word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for just given us, Father, the privilege of being saved. We thank you, Father, that we were saved by the living and enduring word of God. And I pray, Father, for every believer here this morning, and include myself, Father, that I will continue to desire to study your word so that, Father, I may long, Father, for my growth, which would be glorifying to you, Father. I pray that I would have a desire to put away sin, And I pray, Lord, that I will continue to glorify you with everything I say and I do. We love you, Father, and we thank you, and we praise you. I pray that for the believers here this morning also. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.